Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. If you're listening to us in real time, this is the uh, Tuesday afternoon edition of the show. And I have to tell you, there is so much happening down at the legislature, so much bubbling up, that um, I may be the only person in this room old enough to remember anything can happen day on the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> but that's exactly what this show could end up being today, because I have a smart panel of people, and I'll bet they want to talk about a lot of what's been developing downtown today. Among those smart people, Kevin Riley. He is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello, Kevin. Nice to have you here. Uh, Good to be here, even if it is apparently a Mickey Mouse operation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is true that today is one of those days where every time I open my computer to the Political Insider blog at AJC.com, there's some new story popping up about activity downtown. Absolutely. And that's what we're shooting for, Bill. So uh, <laughs> I hope you keep checking and I hope all those listeners keep checking, too. If you're uh, watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by doing going to the GPB news page on Facebook, you will see that right across from Kevin is Teresa Tomlinson. She's the uh, former mayor of Columbus, Georgia, uh, served there for eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Now, yeah. back in the private sector, your law firm is? Paul Booth Smith. Still in Columbus, still yes, making I your home in Columbus. Yes, I work in Columbus, and uh, I also have an office in Atlanta. And also still very active in Democratic Party politics. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right, we'll talk yeah. about that as we go through the show today. Ed Lindsay is back with us, former Atlanta state Republican state representative, now the head of the Georgia Government Affairs Division, do we call it, uh, ARM unit of the world's largest law firm. We'll take industry. any of those titles. <laughs> Hi, Ed. Thank you for having me. And and you haven't been here for quite a while. Chuck Williams. The last time Chuck was on this show, he was a reporter for the Columbus Ledger Inquirer. And now, Chuck, you've moved to the dark side. You're a TV reporter at WRBL in Columbus. I am, Bill. The last time I was here was runoff day for Cagle Kemp. A lot has happened to the state <laughs> and to me since that, since that day. Um, but, yeah, I, I left the ledger after 35 years in newspapers uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and uh, I'm reporting for WRBL, WRBL.com, since Kevin's mentioning AJC.com. But uh, I've been there now for almost three months, and— I will say this, it's the best thing I could have possibly done. I'm enjoying it. I'm actually learning how to edit tape. I'm learning skills I never thought, and I'm working in a room with some really talented and talented veterans and young people. Well, it's wonderful that you don't have to be 27 years old to get a job in TV news anymore. Or <laughs> <laughs> good looking. Well, I was going to say, some, some say it's his handsome mug that was, uh, you know. Yeah. I noticed that he looks a lot more handsome the last time I saw him. So now I know why. All right. On the day I started the job, Bill, I got a text from Galloway. And Galloway sent me there and said, if you're 58 and fat and on TV, you're not there for your good looks. That's, that's, how, I start, that's how I started my career. All right. Uh, let's start with a story that uh, really caught my attention this morning. We, we know, Kevin, that for the last session or two, two sessions, really, uh, legislators, the House particularly, David Ralston as Speaker, has, they've talked extensively about we've got to come up with a significant package of uh, proposals to help rural Georgia get back on its feet across the rural sections of the state economically. And one of the keys to that has been the development of rural broadband for many communities that do not have that access uh, to higher speed internet service. We thought that one of the ways this was going to be paid for was with a tax on, among other things, streaming services and digital services. So what that means is that there was going to be a 4% tax. The proposal and the bill had said for uh, Online products like ebooks, iTunes, music, video games, that sort of thing. But it was also going to be on streaming video services. And that provision, after a lot of howling and complaints, has been pulled out of the measure. 
that was going to account for a great big part of the money that they needed for rural broadband. Right. I mean, I'm interested to see what our former legislator thinks about this, because originally, right, the plan was tax these things and then also uh, eliminate some of the fees and taxes on phone and cable TV services. Everyone seemed happy. It was going to put Georgia taxing the new economy the way it should be taxed and finally solve this rural Georgia problem. And now it's falling apart. Now, should we wait for a surprise here or what, Ed? What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, th there's always been a struggle between trying to keep the tax policy up to date with, with how consumers uh, act. Uh, you know, we've seen it over the years uh, with the, the legislature trying to catch up with the fact that more and more of us are buying our goods online rather than in stores. They've struggled with that struggle with the fact that uh, that we've excluded historically services uh, from the sales tax, but we only include goods, even though a larger and larger percentage of our economy deals with that issue. So this is just another way to uh, another struggle that they're trying to do in order to try to keep our tax policy up to date with how consumers operate. But getting back to the bigger issue, the bigger issue is at one point they're going to have to figure out how they're going to pay for this, because there are certain areas that are. Uh, these providers are very eager to get into, such as uh, an area like uh, like Columbus, where the former mayor uh, used to preside. But there are other areas, like where my family comes from, Wilcox County, in which if there isn't some kind of additional assistance to bring uh, broadband into those areas, it's simply not going to happen. Uh, it's a lot very similar to rural electrification that took place in the 1930s. And, you know, you know, there are several things that must absolutely happen in order for there to be economic development in an area. You've got to have uh, roads. You've got to have a good workforce, a trained workforce. You've got to have a, a healthy uh, medical uh, system in place. And you've got to have broadband. And so one way or the other, they're going to have to try to figure this out. And I do know that Senator Gooch is very serious about this issue. And he's going if to, if they're scrapping this, uh, solution. They're going to have to come up with another one. Teresa, we do. We should point out that although, he, to the best of my knowledge, he has not weighed in publicly about this. Uh, there, well, first, let me say the tax on things like iTunes, eBooks, is going to stay in place largely for competitive reasons because uh, there's a feeling that if you say have a bookstore or whatever, you you don't uh, you, you should be able to compete fairly right, against like the internet tax. But I can't help but tax. wonder to what extent since the streaming tax was uh, uh, the subject of so much attention, whether to some extent uh, the governor's office thought this was this was a violation of their promise to bring taxes down, not to raise them. Right, right. Uh, you saw today that uh, one of the things they all led with was this is this is neutral. <laughs> this is revenue neutral. Uh, we're we're taking taking and giving, and and uh, and so yeah, they they wanted that to be revenue neutral. Absolutely. You know, the thing is, of course, we need, as do most all tax systems, a fundamental redo. But it's just so much more politically easy. Uh, to do these weird one-offs, as one of my friends called it today, um, and uh, exempt some taxes here and, and see if you can't scoop someone in there. But, yeah, if they're going to roll back, um, you know, these franchise fees, uh, which is like $3 million to, to Columbus and just, just one that I can think of, you're talking about 5% eliminating 5% franchise fees, 3% on landlines. And that's a lot of money uh, that they're going to be losing. And then not to make it up otherwise, you know, um, they're, they're just basically have no revenue to do this expansion. But I will say this on the, on the, um, on the broadband, I have actually thought for some time and brought it up at several forums around the state when I was mayor and, and at Georgia Tech, I do not understand why we don't give up on this very expensive broadband uh, expansion and go more to the LTE, uh, which gets you just about the same, you know, megabyte download per second um, as this would, is much less expensive. And I hope if there's some techo person out there they'll let this us is know cell, why this is cell service it's much cheaper and and much more flexible as technology uh you know evolves over time so i think though isn't part of the reason for that 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 may not work in all geographies now in mm -hmm. middle and south georgia which is a lot of flat land right it, it probably works but as the industry 
wrestles with this nationally. I think they want a big solution, Chuck, not just Georgia's solution. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Let me let me stick with the uh, uh, decision not to enforce uh, to add, keep in the bill the, the tax on streaming services and what it could do to broadband. Your area, not your TV station, I'm sure covers parts of the state without access to high-speed broadband. 16% of Georgia is not covered by uh, Internet services that have speeds fast enough to qualify as high-speed Internet. And now the question is, how, are, how is the state going to help pay for that? You know, I got a kind of a different take on this, but you roll out of Columbus and you go down to Quitman County, Randolph County, Stewart County. There's some really, really impoverished areas that have a lot of connectivity issues. But if you remember 30 years ago when they were pushing Quarter Z through, Quarter Z was going to be the answer. It was going to bring economic development to a South highway Georgia. that connected what to what? Remind it con- us. It connected basically cl- cl- through Columbus down to Brunswick. Thank you. Down through there. When they put Quarter Z together, it was going to be the economic answer. It was going to create economic development. Now you're hearing 30 years later, they're saying, is, the, is broadband the economic development answer? If you look at some of these places, and being from Wilcox County, you know a little bit about it, but if you look down into South Georgia, a lot of these places, the jobs have not come like they thought they would with these highways. They have bypassed a lot of these communities. They've created some areas that weren't as strong, and they, you know, if you're in Sylvester, they've created a quicker way to get to the Walmart in in Albany. So, I mean, is is that the answer? And and, and I'm, I don't know. That's a, more of a question than probably what you were shooting for. No, but, it's fine. Well, I but I'm looking you're at you're right from- on, Chuck. I, I mean, I think you are right on. This is a much more complex question, uh, question than just uh, broadband or roads. Yes, but we it, should it say this was just one piece yeah. of well, a yeah. larger economic it back expansion to my point, package. That, 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 that you need all those components in place if you're going to have economic development in a, in a particular area. And you miss if you miss any one of them, it's not going to happen. Ed, what what we are so reluctant in this state to tax people for services that often are many people would say are urgently needed. Um, and and you know I I've said this before. I'm from Chicago. Uh, it, you know, there's a philosophy I think in in a city like Chicago, you pay for yes, you add a tax. If it's helping, if it's in, you know, dealing with the public good, if it's in the, you know, we pay for more schools, that kind of thing. We don't like to do that here in Georgia. Well, we do, <laughs> but but it, it's really up to the up to the individual looking to impose the tax to really show how it's going to directly impact an individual. And I'll use a, a, a couple of examples. Uh, you know, I, I I now live in in the city of Atlanta, which is arguably the most overtaxed area, and yet the sewer tax, for instance passed overwhelmingly, yeah. even in the most conservative areas of the city, uh, because we all knew that there was going to be a direct benefit uh, to receiving that. Uh, uh, East Blost, education splost referendums, always pass anywhere in this state, year in and year out, yeah. because folks see a direct benefit between the quality of the education that children are receiving and the tax that's being imposed. It becomes harder uh, when folks can't. And, and what really gets frustrating is sometimes when things get distorted. Uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, I voted for, and the legislature overwhelmingly voted for, a proposed constitutional amendment uh, to uh, to create a, a better network for trauma care. Well, unfortunately, the opponents of that bill somehow convinced folks in the rural areas uh, that, this ta- that this tax was going to go solely to benefit folks in Metro Atlanta and Grady Hospital in particular, when in fact it was just the opposite. The money was going to be flowing to South Georgia. And so a lot of it, it falls back on uh, the public officials who are seeking to impose the tax to, to truly educate the voters on how it's going to benefit yeah, them. That's you that's saw that difference, point. again, also on the transportation bill, the TIA, that passed in 2010 in your area, uh, Madam Mayor, uh, in 2012, Mm -hmm. passed it because folks saw a direct benefit. Mm -hmm. By contrast, in metro Atlanta, 
uh, that TIA failed because folks in different areas of, of that region just didn't see that direct benefit. Right. People will vote for a tax if they can see the return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they really, really will. They did it like with the T-Splost, as, as Ed was saying, and, and so many other things. But, you know, we need to go ahead. Kevin said, well, you know, we don't want to do the LTE you know, everywhere because we're looking for uniform uh, solution that can be applied nationwide. Well, the fact of the matter is that the population is growing into North Georgia at a pretty rapid pace. The market's going to be there. They're going to be incentivized. The providers are going to be incentivized to do this of their own volition. Um, they're not being incentivized to do it in central and south Georgia because of the population is yeah. so low. And, and the return on their private investment is not enough for them. And so I think it's time for us to get creative. We cannot continue delaying this. There's too many layers. You know, as Ed said, we've got to do streets. We've got to do broadband. We've got to do, you know, all these different things. True. But we need to get started doing them and stop talking about Kevin, them. Kevin, we should point out that uh, your polling, the AJC polling on this subject, had 65% of respondents opposed to attacks on streaming services. So it's no wonder that legislators began to get a little nervous as they right, looked right. And to I their constituents uh, on this. I agree. I mean, first of all, we all know, you ask people, would you like another tax? You're going to pretty much get a no. <laughs> and I think Ed's point is right. I mean, direct benefit. I'm watching Netflix, and you're going to make me pay more for it. How does that help me? Yeah. And I think if you're sitting here in Metro Atlanta, you you know you may only be loosely aware of this rural Georgia. I, 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 I want to move on if we can, but I do want to say we, we're going to have to watch now to see what the next steps on this are, and whether or not the legislature is going to be able to come up with some kind of funding mechanism. Is it a given, Chuck, that there is going to need a, be, be a need for a significant amount of public funding? To go into uh, rural broadband, or do we think there is enough uh, industrial push for it? I mean, we know that electric companies have now been authorized to offer uh, broadband in many of these rural areas. So the question, I guess, before we go on is, how essential is it that we have a significant amount of public money going to broadband? I would argue if you didn't, if you did, it would already be done if it, public funding wasn't necessary. That makes sense. Okay. I mean, the private sector would have taken over. They, if there was a way to do this without public funding, it would already All be right. done, and you'd have high-speed right. access. So let's, let's watch and see how, uh, what the next steps on this are. I, I want to move on to another issue that, again, <laughs> I think about you, uh, Mayor Tomlinson, because this is, a, this is a version of an issue that throughout— 2018, you and your counterpart, Rusty Paul, the mayor of Sandy Springs, talked about, in terms of a different issue, same theme. Um, we now have legislation at the Capitol. It's House Bill 302, for those of you who are keeping track, which would prevent cities and counties from controlling the look and the design of houses in their communities. The state would preempt any kind of city regulation. I assume Columbus must have some oh, basic, yes. rules uh, basic rules that are in place. And now the state says, nope, not so fast. State preempts your ability to do that. Well, I have to apologize to Vance Smith, the author of this particular bill off front, out front, because he's a good friend of mine and I like him very much. However, I, I do think he's dead wrong on this. And what's interesting is we get the most complaints at the local level um, from people who want more protection against their neighbors, uh, not being good neighbors, uh, and, and not investing at a minimal appropriate level to sustain their house. So a couple of quick things. Every man wants to be an island until his neighbor wants to be an island. Okay, so that's just when I take that as just a political truism. I don't believe that there is any ordinance in the state of Georgia that is not in a historic district that regulates the color of an exterior house. And I would love for Vance to bring that to me. I think that's a bunch of hooey. Um, I, you know, this is, of course, completely contrary to the Republican mantra of, um, you know, localities are the laboratory of democracy, uh, which has been a lot of faux conservatism for, you know, decades. Um, they clearly don't believe that. Um, they believe that the state should be dictating these things. Um, it, it really is. And then one last thing, and I can see hands going up around the table, but 
I mean, we're starting now to realize that quality of life is what makes our cities valuable and economically desirable. So we don't have to put $800 million on the table to get Amazon to go there. Maybe we can only put $600 million on the table because our, our city's so fantabulous, people want to come there. One of the ways you do that is by adding density and creating standards so that the neighborhoods are appealing, even at lower income levels. It, it creates great stability. It's called sustainability. It's called planning. And so my dear friend Vance is way out of step we, with we this. We should point out that this has Chuck, more than this is more than just the color you want to paint a house. This is about what a structure it lo- looks like, how it's constructed. It's does your uh, garage go all the way down to the to the curb? It, do you have uh, certain uh, height restrictions on a on a home in a residential neighborhood? So, which is one of the reasons the homeowners, uh, the home builders want this passed because they don't it, they don't like having these restrictions that differ from municipality to municipality. As somebody from Columbus, I don't think we broke new ground saying that Teresa and Vance have a policy disagreement. Um, I think that's a pretty well-known thing. But I was looking at, I talked to Vance earlier today, and you're exactly right, Bill. What he's talking, the, the what they're talking about is building design, and it means exterior building color, type or style of cladding material, wood plank, siding, brick, whatever. Um, Style or materials of roof structures and porches, exterior non-structural architectural ornamentation, location and architectural styling of windows, doors, and garage doors, the number and types of rooms, the interior layout of those rooms, and the types of foundations. So, I mean, if you look at this, that's what they're talking about. It's more than appearance. It's more than appearance. It's much more it, than appearance. But it, they're say, what he's saying is that the that the city can't regulate that on you. And if you know Vance, and I know Ed knows Vance very well, if you know Vance, you know this is the core of what Vance believes. He is a property rights guy of the highest order and has consistently been one when he was in the minority the majority and DOT Ed, Ed um, I'm moving in next door, and I'm yeah. I'm painting my house purple with orange trim, which I believe <laughs> in my neighborhood you can do that because <laughs> uh, um, you know. But you know, getting back to the the, the core uh, principles that are involved here, uh, for 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 Vance, uh, it's a matter of private property rights, uh, and you know it's you know you talk about what's local. Well, the ultimate local is someone owning their own property and what they can and cannot do on their property. And this is something that Vance has been advocating in one form or another for a long time. I I recall he was one of the folks back in 2006, I think it was, when we were in the legislature, dealing with the issue of eminent domain. When you had the city up in Connecticut that had overreached in terms of taking someone's private property uh, for business, to develop it for business reasons in a community, uh, and Vance was one of the folks who was arguing, you know, that's just not right in terms of take of, of a local government taking someone's private property. So it, th- th- therein lies the real fight here. It's not a matter of the state versus the local government for folks like Vance and th- what they're arguing. They're arguing in terms of someone having uh, control over how they uh, what they build on their own property. Kevin, Kevin, one way or the other. I mean, that that, that you know, there is a legitimate discussion along the lines of what the mayor was talking about. But therein lies the real Kevin, argument. Yeah. We've got Brookhaven, Roswell, Johns Creek, Dunwoody, South Fulton, all cities that are drawing up resolutions to formally oppose the bill. Uh, Cobb County's Board of Commissioners is voting on a resolution against this tonight. Uh, the Association of County Commissioners opposes it. The Georgia Municipal Association opposes it. Brookhaven City Manager Christian Sigmund is quoted as saying the bill could indirectly cause property values to plummet and lead developers and businesses to avoid areas in the current that currently have sensible restrictions. Sigmund calls it the wild, wild west. So how do you—so Ed says, hey, I'm the property owner. I have the ultimate rights of local control. Well, despite the— former mayor's criticism of this poor legislator, I think the fact that he gets all of those people to agree on something is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> he, was, he only got six, it was six, four, five against. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, I have to say, I believe I'm correct, that this bill is not likely to uh, pass out of the legislature, this 
session. Maybe not even it's, out of the committee. It's in now. It's out, it's a, it's well, out of the committee. It's, it's out of committee. It's, it's, it's in the rules committee. But it's in rules now. And let me just say very quickly, you know, Ed has a point. But the fact of the matter is that, again, I don't know of any county, any municipality that bars the color or the uh, the materials you can use in every single neighborhood, how this is used, and we need to get real, because we, we misrepresent, you know, that, oh, this is going to prohibit you from painting your house blue if you want. That's just not true. I mean, that's not happening in Georgia, so why do we need a law to prevent it? What, what is happening is people want to revitalize their downtown business districts. They, they create facade, citizen-filled committees, and they help raise the standards. They help monitor through citizen-led committees, you know, what our standards going to be here. Now, if you want to move out to the less dense area where, frankly, Vance lives, and you want to paint your house Florida Gator blue and orange, then you can knock yourself out. (laughs) But you come down to in-town Columbus, where it is very densely populated, where we've gotten this vibrancy on the street type thing, and and you go to, to change the look, then you are messing with what has been proven through decades to be those things that make neighborhoods stable. All right. Uh, let, me, let me just finish one thing real yeah, quick. Yeah, we got to get to a break. Uh, purple, I got no problems with, but if my neighbor were to paint it Florida orange, uh, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> you get the last word, Chuck. One we got to get a break in. I saw a citizen committee in Columbus last week reverse itself on demolition of a building after they voted 3 2 saying they couldn't do it. The developer went down and said, You just killed a $22 million downtown hotel. They started rethinking, and before the meeting adjourned, they revoted it 5-0. All right. Uh, we got to take a break right now. Uh, You're listening to Political Rewind. We've got more from the legislature coming up uh, after these few messages. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. After a bitter war, Vietnam took a friendly stance toward the U.S. and prospered. We never forget the past, but now it's the best way to have a normal and friendly relation to the US. Another communist state, North Korea, took a different path. Lessons from Vietnam ahead of President Trump and Kim Jong-un's summit there this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. I want to take up, uh, uh, just very quickly, uh, an issue that relates to uh, yesterday's show. Uh, uh, Kevin, yesterday, uh, Charlotte Nash, the uh, chair of the Gwinnett County Commission, was on. She's out front leading the effort to pass a MARTA tax up in Gwinnett County. They're, they've started early voting. Um, just real quickly, one of the, the actual voting date is March 19th. Here's one of the things that's so interesting about that, Charlotte. Nash is a Republican. Uh, she's leading this effort. And interestingly, we know and she acknowledges that Republicans are split on whether they should approve this tax or not. But Democrats are united. Democrats are working hard, and they're out identifying voters in Gwinnett County to get them to the polls, and they're also preparing for 2020 when they know Gwinnett and the 7th District are going to be a battleground. I think it's fascinating that they're looking down the road even as they push for this MARTA tax. Right. As you look at this MARTA thing in Gwinnett County, I mean, you get to see a lot of things about how the county's changed and its struggles with its past and future. It's really a proxy for the future of politics in Gwinnett County. Well, they're building, among other things, Ed, they're building a voter base. They're they're building a database that they'll be able to call on in 2020 uh, in the congressional race, in the presidential uh, race up there. It's a a smart tactic. Well, it is a smart tactic on their part, and, and hopefully Republicans are also engaged in a smart tactic. The fact of the matter is, gets back to what we talked about in terms of of having a vibrant uh, community, you have to have a vibrant transportation system. And in metro Atlanta, more urban areas, that includes viable transit. Uh, We've seen Gwinnett County, for instance, has lost uh, a lot of business, Uh, some very big headquarters, as a matter of fact, who have moved into the uh, more in town simply because they wanted to be near transit. And so Gwinnett County recognized that in addition to the changing demographics in that area. 
So, you know, it, it, it is something that the time has come for Gwinnett, and hopefully this will be a successful vote. And if it's not this time, it'll be hopefully sometime very soon because it needs to get there. And they want to be near all the good um, design guidelines that are in down areas. No, no, seriously. Um, you know what's very interesting? I want to say, and I think you're you're right on. Uh, you know, Democrats are coming. I told you it's a two party state a long time ago, and and it most certainly is. So we're coming. We're working it everywhere. That's happening. Um, okay, I have a, I have an announcement to make. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce. In, in various localities are actually progressive. And uh, it's just true. I've known it for years. I've said it several times at Chamber of Commerce meetings. You guys are progressive and you just don't know it. And so I love to see when they say the Republicans are split, if I may be so bold, not being an elected official from that particular area, I would bet you 10 bucks what they mean is that um, the business Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce Republicans are all supporting mass transit because it's essential to economic development. Democrats are supporting it because it's a progressive move towards moving humanity forward. That's what progressivism means. And so you see this coalition that's I think we're going to start seeing more and more in Georgia where the business Republicans, the pragmatic Republicans and the, the progressives and pragmatic progressives start coming. Well, together. I mean, you could say that's exactly the kind of Republican coalition that had a big impact on whether the governor was going to going to sign the religious liberty uh, yes. Bill, a couple yes. sessions ago. Let me. All right. I wanted to mention that quickly, uh, just because what happened after our show yesterday is that the Democrats in the Gwinnett County legislation voted unanimously uh, to support this martyr referendum. And again, I brought it up because I think they're being very clever in looking at how they can use the momentum of this vote to build a voter database that they'll employ moving into the 2020 elections. All right. Uh, let's go back directly to the Capitol. Uh, Add today HB 316, which is the bill that will change how George votes, Yes, is uh, going to pass. There's no question it's going to pass in the Georgia House, despite the fact there are Democrats who don't like it. It will put in place a voting system that I guess we call ballot marking machines, which means that we'll still vote on touchscreen uh, uh, machines. But a paper trail, a receipt will be generated so we can check and make sure. And then you'll scan, apparently, depending on what system they buy. Yeah. So that's going to pass in the House without too much difficulty. There are also a handful of kind of election reform measures in that. Republicans would say they're pretty good. Democrats would say they're nowhere at this point. But that's moving forward. Well, I think most folks would, would say they're pretty good. The question is whether or not they go as far as some folks want. That's I don't my think point. Most folks would. I, I, do, I did run into one supporter of this bill earlier today at the Capitol, and they were nervous, and it reminded me of the joke that Charleston Heston used to give about Ben-Hur, in which he was nervous the first time he had to do one of these chariot races and the the director said, just stay in the chariot. You're going to win. <laughs> uh, uh, the bill's going to pass, it, you know, because it has to pass. I mean, I think both sides recognize it. something has to pass. We have to come up with an updated system. We haven't had an updated system in a while. The question is what it's going to look like. One thing that, that, that sort of troubles me is some of the partisan nature over what the, the nature of the machines will be when it really should be just looking at what is going to help uh, get more people out to vote and to have their votes accurately recorded. And and I'm kind of curious with some of my friends on the on the Democratic side, of, uh, you know, looking to go to pure paper ballots. And I'm going, you know, have you not gone back and looked at Georgia history? Because most of the the true uh, fraud that this state has seen uh, over the last you know hundred years uh, was a result of paper right, ballots. Let's yes. do this. But 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 as you well know. There is a contingent of Democrats, at Stacey Abrams being the leader of this effort, that uh, really believe that these machines are not the best way to go and that are asking for more significant reforms in terms of the that portion of, of the bill. Kevin, let me play a TV spot, the audio of a TV spot that the Abrams folks, Fair Fight Action, her new organization, are putting up. And it makes it clear that they're fixing to continue fighting Brian Kemp every chance they can. And HB 316 is one of those fights. Long lines, broken machines. That's what Georgia voters got in 2018. And it could get worse. Those faulty machines, the ones that could get hacked to steal our vote. Governor Kemp wants to spend $150 million of our taxpayer dollars to buy more. 
more faulty machines from a company that employed his advisor as a lobbyist. Security experts and voters prefer hand-marked paper ballots. Call Governor Kemp. Tell him Georgia wants to see our vote on paper. Tom Faust just told me that if you're following us at Politics GPB on Twitter, you can, uh, see, you'll see a link to watch that commercial. Kevin? Uh, you know, I can't figure out, uh, as Ed points out, why people think paper ballots would be a better system. I mean, I understand that supposedly someone's going to hack into the computers and all that stuff. But, I mean, election security around the machines is going to be an issue no matter what, right? I mean, uh, even the counting machines, right? I, I just – it feels like, uh, you know, the election machines are an easy thing to get focused on because of the money and the, the camp hiring this lobbyist onto his staff. But these other reforms seem like where, if you really care about getting more people to the polls, the energy should be. I'm interested to see yep. what – Well, Well, you guys think I think, uh, you know, Governor Kemp did not help himself, as Kevin just said, with, you know, hiring the consultant. And, and, you know, this was something that they, of course, had down in Randolph County when they were trying to close some of those precincts. And it turns out one of the guys that was the consultant was also uh, working for this particular uh, firm. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that makes people nervous about the credibility and legitimacy of the decisions being made. So you've got that. Um, there's some very pragmatic and I think serious people that I respect greatly, Carolyn Hughley, Mary Margaret Oliver, Bob Trammell, and, and they have All said democratic legislators yeah, yeah, that hold this position. And I, I asked Mary Margaret, uh, the other day I saw her and I said, tell me now, cause I'm going to be on Bill Nygut's show. Um, I, eventually I didn't know it'd be so soon. And he's going to ask me about this paper ballot <laughs> thing, because I'm well aware of what Ed's saying. Uh, you know, most of the fraud in the state of Georgia's history has been through paper ballots. And she insisted that the hours and hours she sat through, that that really is the best form. So I think what has happened is because these machines have gotten old, uh, because of what's going on in our national conversation about hacking, um, because of what happened at Kennesaw State, there is just a very low level of credibility of anything that is electronic and, and digital. And I think that's unfortunate because I'm telling you, the, the Gen Z's and the millennials are going to want to start voting on right. their phones, Chuck, and we're going to be having paper ballots. That, that's an, you're yeah, right. We're going to see that kind of thing. But, Chuck, all blind. right, so let's, let me make the case that I, I hear from the, those who are supporting these, these systems. I mean, uh, we've already heard uh, Ed uh, make a portion of it. Number one, the machines will be at least similar to what Georgia voters have been voting on for almost 20 years now, those touchscreens which they're familiar with. And so in some ways, the educational process be a lot simpler than it was when we switched to those Kathy Cox ordered machines back in uh, early 2000. Um, so there's that. The other side of that is the one cybersecurity expert, a Georgia Tech professor on the commission that... Kemp, as Secretary of State, put in place was the guy who said, you better go to paper ballots because any kind of computer system you use is hackable. That's at least worth acknowledging here. I know Kevin will probably agree with me in this. I dread the night of being a journalist working the first election on paper ballots. You think the <laughs> nights are long now. I think they will be much, much yeah, longer. I agree. There will be election not my, week for journalists. I'm not taking the, any position yeah. on this officially, but that's certainly crossed my mind that uh, it would be nice to get the results in a timely manner. Yeah. But let me also add that in addition to the security aspect, uh, the fact of the matter is that, that if you – truly want to make sure that someone's vote is accurately tabulated and is going to be counted. Uh, the electronic system with a paper backup. I, I strongly believe in a paper backup. I signed a bill in 2007 calling for a paper backup. Is is the electronic system, uh, particularly for those occasional voters who are more likely, quite frankly, to mess up on a paper ballot uh, in one form or another. That's And that's pretty well recorded. Uh, in, in going back to 2000 election, presidential election in Florida. Uh, so, you know, we, we really need to sort of so, sort of look at the, the, the big picture. We want people people's votes to be uh, accurately recorded and to be and to be safe and secure when they're tabulated. And and yes, we've got concerns with electronic. But like was mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, 
that's the concern that comes all the way down the line. So, yes, we need to do things to secure the, the system and go in the direction that our children are going to want to vote in the future, which is, which is I, with the touch I have to screen. ask Teresa this. I mean, I thought the Republicans were supposed to be the conspiracy theorists. How did the <laughs> Democrats turn out well, to be the conspiracy theorists? Let me say, Kevin, I'm not the- sure that's conspiracy theory. I mean, every federal judge, except the one in the Amico case, which was thrown out, um, every federal judge agreed with the Democratic position that the what was going on in Georgia and the way it was going on was not consistent with federal law. But that wasn't over the voting machines. Right? Yeah. Well, it, well, there was one uh, one judge held that we sh- that we would she would order paper ballots, but she didn't have enough time. Well, the question that, that it was hackable, that our system was hackable. Judge Totenberg yeah. said exactly that. Those were the old machines, right? The question was vulnerability, same, not but, actuality. But it's the same concept as these are digital, they're electronic, they can be hacked. And, and that, I mean, you know, you cannot say that that is irrational. I mean, that is a federal judge who's sitting there looking at these evidence, looking at this evidence. Experts from Georgia Tech and other places have said these things are hackable. We we know somebody hacked in, albeit a white hat, to Kennesaw State. We know that the Russians hacked into our election. There's a story today in the Washington Post that the cybersecurity folks uh, of our intelligence system in the United States stopped a hack on Election Day in 2018. From the Russians. From the Russians. So come <laughs> on, right. people. This is I, serious. This isn't a conspiracy. Right. Well, yeah. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, you know, Roy Barnes, before he was governor, when he was a member of the state house, Ed, you'll you'll uh, certainly be aware of this. Uh, he used to have, he used to have one of those wooden train whistles that he hid in his desk in the state house, and when a bill appeared on the tracks <laughs> to be railroaded through, Roy would pull that whistle out and he'd give it a couple of toots, in- indicating, "Yup, this bill is on a fast track." And I think it's fair to say. Roy would be uh, using that whistle on HB 360. Well, by contrast, uh, I, and I, for, and I won't do this here because it'll pierce your eardrums, but I have a certain whistle that'll show that, that, that sort of mocks a missile going down that I used to use when, oh, I, when right. I heard a missile when I saw a bill going right. down there. I got to get to another break. By the way, we do have some breaking news. Uh, we've all been paying attention to the North Carolina congressional race, which was eventually thrown out by the Election Commission because of fraudulent uh, uh, absentee ballot harvesting on behalf of Republican Mark Harris. Uh, we've just been getting bulletins in here that Mark Harris is not going to run for reelection as the Republican candidate. He feels his campaign has been too seriously damaged by this entire story against him. An interesting development in that case, Chuck. Very much so. I mean, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, it's (laughs) through the damaging testimony of his son. All right, let's do this. Let's get to another break. When we come back, we've got still uh, a lot to talk about. I want to turn to uh, national news, and I want to turn to a rule that got very little attention I think, over the weekend that has an impact on uh, family planning agent organizations, particularly Planned Parenthood. We'll do that after this break. On the next Fresh Air, Pamela Adlon, her FX comedy series Better Things begins season three Thursday. Like Adlon, her character is a single mother of three who's also helping her aging mother while trying to keep up her career as an actor. It's the first season without the input of the series co-creator Louis C.K., Adlon severed ties after he admitted to sexual misconduct. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Michael Cohen is going to prison for financial crimes and for lying to Congress. I will spend the rest of my life to fix the mistake that I made. But before he goes, he's testifying before a House committee about his business with the president. It's said that I should take responsibility for his dirty deeds. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Join me for live special coverage of the hearing from NPR News. You can listen live on gpbnews.org starting Wednesday morning at 10. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson is uh, with us uh, today. I'm glad to have you with us. Good to be here. Uh, we will ask you only once yes. uh, whether you have any new thoughts about whether you're going to run for office in uh, 2020. Um, actually, I've been saying, of course, that I've been looking at that, and you know that. And um, as I said last time, uh, quite some length, 
that we're all um, waiting to see what Stacy's going to do. I think she's earned the right for a little bit of time mm-hmm. of consideration. I just so don't, don't want to let the opportunity to pass waiting yeah. for Godot. <laughs> right. And Bill, when a she's, great play. Yeah. When, when she said, I have an announcement to make a few minutes yeah, ago. That's I, what I, I, I was hitting doing. record. Yeah. I was going to see if I could go that's, work. Uh, that's Chuck Williams. Uh, he was with the Ledger Inquirer in Columbus. Uh, he's a veteran journalist from down there. He's gone over to TV, WRBL. You like TV, huh, Chuck? It's uh, it's a different world. Okay, <laughs> totally different uh, pressure. Republican, a former Republican uh, lawmaker, Ed Lindsay. He's uh, was uh, represented big chunk of mostly the northern parts of the, of Atlanta and, and, right. and north a from poor there. impoverished area called Ed, Buckhead. That's right. <laughs> Kevin Riley, we're so glad you're here as well. The editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. All right, uh, we've got a couple minutes to discuss what's a pretty sweeping. Um, uh, rule. HHS released, Teresa, let me go to you on this. They, they released a rule the other day which said federal funds will now be withheld from any agency which is offering um, uh, access to abortions in addition to whatever family planning they might be done. And the specific funding that they're talking about withholding is a federal grant for uh, poorer women Yes. who don't have that the access uh, to health care. And, and the rule goes considerably beyond just that. It really, it, it's, uh, it, it really hamstrings uh, agencies like Planned Parenthood, and it's uh, being fought furiously by groups like Planned Parenthood. Right. It, it basically says that, um, that doctors can talk with a patient about abortion but cannot tell them where to get one. Yeah. And imagine the desperation of somebody who felt the need for whatever personal reason uh, to have those types of services that could not avail upon uh, the the medical professional uh, until we start treating women as whole human beings uh, with equal rights to every other human being and in charge of their physicality and in charge of their health care. Um, you know, we're, we're always going to be one step behind, frankly. And I thought it was... Um, I thought it was interesting when we were talking about the Equal Rights Amendment in Georgia. We had several Republicans go ahead and sign on to that bill uh, to have the Georgia legislature approve the Equal uh, Rights Amendment. Um, and, and it actually was gaining some momentum. It was sort of exciting to see this bipartisan move to recognize women as being equal. And then, of course, uh, some of the uh, right-to-life folks came in and uh, got in the ears of those Republicans who had signed on and said, you can't do that. Um, because it will be an anti, you know, pro-life um, stance. Because if you recognize a woman as an equal person once she becomes pregnant, then the state will not be able to in- invade the walls yeah. of her body. And and that really is a. If you stop for a moment and just think about what, go- if you think about government for a minute, what that means is that women then become um, sort of state vessels, if you will, um, dominion. Uh, and it is, we, we need to start getting real uh, about this. And, and when, one last thing, and I see you want to go to Kevin, but one last thing is when we start talking about the very important concept of personhood, there is no other example in, in, in mankind where one person is encased within the walls of the flesh of another person. And so we need to be very, very careful. I I say this from a faith-based position. Women are divinely made, and they are divinely made to carry life within the walls of their flesh. And nowhere, I'm a Christian, nowhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, does it say that that sole guardianship, that that sole stewardship is to be delegated to a secular legislative body, and we need to start having a broader conversation. Um, Kevin, we should point out that this uh, there's a, a simil- there's something going on down at the state capitol today in a similar vein. Legislation was introduced. It's essentially like a personhood uh, bill, a bill which says that abortion in Georgia will be outlawed once the doctor can detect a fetal heartbeat. That usually happens around six weeks. So here's a—Teresa just made her uh, rather eloquent pitch about why women have the right to choose. But take it to a political uh, plane for just a second. Republicans are trying to hold on to the female vote, and I'm not sure, while I get that there are are women 
conservative women who oppose abortion. I'm not sure that these are the sort of maneuvers that are going to help in that in that uh, area. And I say that acknowledging the fact that for a great many people, the sanctity of that fetus's uh, life it is what is most important. Right. I mean, I just think that we've been expecting this, right? I mean, the signals have all been out there since Trump was elected. They're, they're all over the place about moves in this direction. And I do think, you know, it, to just isolate it to a political question versus all the other questions around this issue, you really have to wonder where this will lead because the importance of power, the voice of women is just growing and growing. I mean, there was that... Uh, that that tricky ruling by the by the court about women in uh, being eligible for the uh, draft, rather having to register. Or yeah, not having the draft. to, not being right. eligible, right. being required. Right, <laughs> and and I just think, uh, me too. All these things that are happening, um, any signal of disrespect for what role women have in our society is perilous. Ed, let me let you weigh in well, on this. Well, you know. Um, actually, I agree with a, a little bit of what Teresa said, although she and I will reach a different conclusion. Uh, I'm someone who strongly believes in the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm also pro-life. I'm also uh, supportive of the Me Too movement uh, because, you know, uh, you know, as as someone who has nieces and nephews and sisters and mothers, and, you know, I don't want to ever see any of them disrespected. Uh, at some point in our society, we're going to have to have an honest discussion that goes beyond bumper stickers Teresa is not one of those folks who sticks with bumper stickers either. But as to the fact that we, we were dealing with uh, the sanctity of an individual being having to control over their body and also a legitimate state interest in protecting innocent life. And where you exactly draw that line in order to recognize both of those fundamental uh, truths is, is, is a difficult thing that can only be decided with honest discussions on both sides. Thanks. And getting back to the issue of the regulation in particular, uh, what what I've been trying to tell folks is that if you don't like Planned Parenthood and you don't like what they're doing in terms of abortion, before you take away their funding, however, that deal with indigent health care for women, you better set up another network uh, infrastructure in place to take care of it. And so we, until they do that, Planned Parenthood, for the most part, is the only vehicle out there. Now, now if you really are serious— don't just deal with the funding issue, but create that alternative network. All right. I've got to stop that the conversation there. We're going to be talking more about this on tomorrow's show when we explore uh, this this bill uh, about fetal heartbeats uh, uh, with our panel that's coming in for tomorrow's show. Uh, I also want to point out very quickly that the Senate has just passed uh, Governor Kemp's Patients First Act. This is the broad measure in which he is asking for the authority, essentially, to come up with a plan for helping to subsidize the cost of people buying insurance on the Obamacare markets and also looking at some form, perhaps, of uh, waiver for Medicaid, although that all remains uh, kind of up in the air. But first step on that one, there's another bill that I think the Roy Barnes train whistle <laughs> would be uh, used for. So we're out of time. Kevin Riley, Chuck Williams, Ed Lindsay, uh, Teresa Tomlinson, thank you for a really, really excellent conversation uh, today. I wish we had another hour, but we don't. So we're going to say goodbye for today. We're back tomorrow at two with another political rewind, and I hope you can join us then.